0: Welcome to the Wealth Doc Podcast with Mike Heckman from Sobble Point Wealth Management. In this podcast, Mike helps business owners, medical professionals, and retirees develop strategies to help preserve, protect, and pass on their wealth. Using practical strategies, Mike acts as your lighthouse keeper to guide your path of converting business assets into retirement income and inheritance funding. We don't like that shipwrecked feeling of not having enough, and you shouldn't either. Join Mike and get ready to explore the tools you need to manage your business efficiently, build its value, and have fun doing it. Now, on to the
1: show. Hello, and welcome to the Wealth Doc Podcast with your host, Mike Heckman. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hi, Mike. How are you?
2: Hey, doing fantastic. Uh, great to be here. How are you, Wendy?
1: Oh, oh, I'm good, and I'm happy to be back. Now, we have a guest, right? Yeah, we have a guest. Glad to have uh,
2: our chief investment officer, uh, Rick Waddell, uh, joining us uh, remotely from, uh, I think you're in Birmingham today, aren't you, Rick? Uh,
3: that is correct. You have found me on a day when I am in Birmingham. So yes, uh, coming to you from uh, lovely Birmingham, Alabama.
1: Oh, Fantastic. It's always good to have a guest here. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Rick.
3: Well, Wendy, thank you so much. Uh, and Mike, thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm always happy to to do these types of things. And uh, it's always an honor, uh, you know, when I'm asked. Really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, well, awesome then. Uh, uh, just because uh, we have a limited amount of time, let's kind of get to it. So uh, Rick, you've met uh, some of our clients uh, in some of the, the dinners, events that we've hosted. And uh, the last time you were in town, I thought you did a real good job just kind of uh, explaining a little bit about as far as like what you do for Sobble Point and RFG and kind of like what your role was in there. And I was wondering if you could do a good job uh, just kind of restating that to start off and reintroduce you to any of our listeners.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, uh, I appreciate the, the compliment on the on the speaking engagement. As you said, uh, in the intro, I'm, a, I'm the chief investment officer at RFG. Uh, so that really encompasses, I like to say, um, three different things. You know, first and foremost, I'm here to serve as an investment resource for every advisor on our platform. Uh, we have about a hundred advisors spread throughout the country, just north of four billion dollars in assets under management in total. About twenty-seven offices across about seventeen states, and for every one of those um, investment advisors, if they have a question about the market or they have a question about a particular fund, or a manager, or a particular stock, or they want to understand how bonds are working, or at least what my opinion of that is. I'm here to serve as that resource and really provide a sounding board for those advisors um, as they think about how, how uh, you know, how we're managing money for our clients. The second role uh, is really uh, to serve as that same resource for every uh, client that's on our platform. Uh, So uh, not just the advisors, but the end clients. Uh, You know, we do a lot of work um, or try and do as much work as we can on educating folks uh, about how markets work and maybe how we think about approaching them and, you know, really kind of just educate and provide answers to the clients so that they can make informed decisions, but also so that they can feel good about the way uh, markets are moving or how they're invested, kind of inspire a little bit of that confidence. Um, And then last but not least, um, we actually manage a non-trivial amount of assets on behalf of our advisors and their clients should our advisors choose to use us. I oversee a team of investment professionals that manage money on behalf of clients. Uh, We manage uh, right at just north of $1.3 billion in overall client assets. And that's ultimately at the discretion of the client and the advisor, whether or not they choose to use our services or not. But, you know, we are certainly happy for the folks uh, that do and and appreciate the trust that they put in us uh, on a daily basis.
2: Well, oh, and I think that brings up like two good questions. First of all is, uh, do you want to speak to your team and how your team is built?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we like to, and I I think you're going to maybe touch on this later. um, We like to think of ourselves as an institutional asset manager. And indeed, I think we are. And we'll talk a little bit about what the difference is between that and retail. But, you know, just so we're clear, the investment team has sort of three direct people on it. Myself, our head of trading, as well as an adjunct that kind of trades and helps me a little bit on the investment research side, and then in addition to those 3 people that literally this is 100% of their jobs uh every day We have an investment committee that is broadly comprised of about eight individuals who every time we are looking to make a trade, buy or sell a particular security, um, rotate a security, do anything else like that, we actually run the investment decision through that committee. Uh, It's not just what I think, it's actually what the consensus of the eight individuals that are on that team. And then away from that, we also have an investment advisory board that I get held accountable to three. Times a year that are comprised of individuals that look m- like myself at other firms. Um, so all that information is available on our website. You can see, you know, who those individuals are um, and what their backgrounds are. Um, but basically about three times a year, I get drug in front of the coals to talk a little bit about what we've done year to date and what we're planning on doing going forward. And really all of that, I think, kind of distinguishes us from some of what you find elsewhere in retail wealth management, which is, you know, maybe it's one individual, maybe two That are selecting investments as one of the things that they do, but not the only thing that they do. So, you know, they also have a focus on planning or they also have a focus on estate planning or they also have a focus on tax and they're really, you know, wearing this sort of jack of all trades type hat. Um, You know, we prefer to think of ourselves as, you know, you've got numerous people that every day come into the office thinking about asset management and how do we, you know, maximize the sort of risk return trade off for our clients. And that's what we really think of when we think of a team
2: would you say that that's the primary difference between when somebody says institutional versus retail or or would you go a little bit more on that? I find myself explaining you know that we do the institutional investment management and uh, I, I I see a lot of deer in the headlight, blank statements or a, oh yeah, I think that's what everybody does you know so uh, so how would how would you explain that?
3: You know, look, I think it starts with what we just talked about, right which is do you have dedicated people that this is all they do? Um, it's not a side job for them, is it? It is 100% their pure focus. Do those individuals have oversight in that role and function from other individuals that aren't even necessarily aligned with their core job function? So whether that's an investment committee structure, um, whether that's a policy board structure, whether these are things that are sort of checks on checks and balances within the system to say, you know, hey, uh, when you're making an investment decision how did you arrive at that decision you know and, and i'll just be honest right you've occasionally run into in retail wealth management folks that aren't really that rigorous in their decision-making or frameworks and processes. And we sort of think about the institutional side as being more focused on that rigorous approach to, this is how we make decisions. We follow a process, which not only us that are held accountable to our investors, but it's also us held accountable to other individuals outside the firm that are kind of maintaining that check and balance. And I really, you know, look, I'm a mathematician by heart. Uh, and when you're a mathematician, you test it kind of the extremes. You know, when I think about institutional asset management, you know, I generally think about highly educated, highly trained individuals that are purely focused on security selection, following rigorous processes to kind of come up with those. You know, these are professionals, right? Right. Right. And when I think about And when I think about more retail wealth management, you know, I mean, you think about the guy who's or a gal who, you know, like they have lunch with a wholesaler uh, who's a representative of a mutual fund company Um, and the wholesaler gives them a pitch around a particular mutual fund or whatever else it is that they might be hawking that day. And, you know, the advisor goes back to his office or her office and, you know, puts in a ticket for a couple of those mutual funds, uh, you know, because they learned something at lunch and they also got a free lunch. So uh, <laughs> we well, we kind of want to distinguish between uh, what we do, which is very much metric and process driven versus what can be a little bit more, in the worst cases, a little bit more of a hodgepodge approach to how investment portfolios are actually constructed.
2: Right on. You know, when we talk about the professional and the uh, education that kind of puts you in the chair, do you want to speak to like uh, what you did before you were a chief investment officer and like like what, what your schooling looked like?
3: I will. Um, I will first give the disclaimer, uh, which is I'm not a jerk. It's very hard <laughs> to go through a bio, you know, your own bio and kind of not sound a little bit like one, but uh, well, right. here goes. I went. I got. I had my undergraduate degree from Harvard uh, in applied mathematics and economics. After that, I spent three years at this little shop called uh, Bain Capital Credit. Bain Capital Credit was a very small firm when I joined. They had about three hundred million in assets under management at the time and about 20 investment professionals so uh and I was in a class of 6 when I was hired so depending on how you want to define it I was either employee number 14 or employee number 20 uh you know somewhere in that range I was there for 3 years uh and then they sent me off to Stanford to get my MBA when I graduated out of the MBA program I was the number 1 student in the class so I won the Henry Ford Scholar and Bain subsequently brought me back after that And I worked there for the next better part of a decade. Uh, And by the time I left, I was the head of consumer fixed income investing as well as an assistant portfolio manager for our $8 billion um, CLO portfolio. So this is, and I I say this not to, you know, like pound my chest, right? Like, you know, whatever. But I do say that when we hire folks uh, and we look at constructing an institutional investment team, they are folks that look like this. Uh, You know, they are individuals that have been investing for, you know, decades, highly skilled, highly trained individuals that kind of know the markets inside and out. Um, Versus what I'll call more retail wealth management, which tends to be, you know, okay, somebody who may have gotten, maybe they got their CFA, maybe they didn't. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: But, you know, they are wearing this hat in addition to all of the other things that go into being a financial advisor
2: yeah and and i i find myself trying to explain like how that relates and like how you help me help my people and it just is such a a liberating experience that uh, i can rely on on your summation instead of, you know, me trying to duplicate, you know, like what you do, which uh, I've uh, tried in the past. And, you know, just it's so much better for me to be able to like lean on your team, you know, so I've just found that it's a tremendously liberating experience over the last few years, Uh, you know, and then, and then so the Bluemont system that that, uh, you use, uh, when and how and why did you create that?
3: Yep. I joined, we'll give everybody a little bit of a history lesson. I joined RFG back in 2016 and at the time was kind of just given a blank slate for whatever we wanted the investment platform to look like. Uh, You know, hey, let's go, let's run with it. And the idea of institutional investment management is to really provide customization for clients and tailored portfolios for clients while at the same time maintaining the ability to be able to do it at scale. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I think is really powerful about the investment management side is if done correctly, it takes the same amount of time and work to manage a $100 million of assets as it does to manage $3 billion in assets. You know, you are really, if you can define the universe of portfolios in such a way to say okay look i have portfolios that are appropriate for a certain amount of risk and maybe that's you know a very conservative portfolio or maybe that's a very aggressive portfolio Um, I also have portfolios that are appropriate for different need states in terms of, do I want a lot of income to come out of the portfolio or am I purely focused on growth? I don't want to see interest and dividends coming out of the portfolio. If you can kind of define the universe in those ways and offer up choices along those spectrums, right? How much risk do I want to take, but also how much income do I want to be sourcing out of the portfolio? then you can really offer clients a broad selection of potential options to choose from. You know, I think we offer somewhere in the 30s of total invest. Actually, I think it's north of that if you wanted to get super custom with what you can actually do with the
2: portfolios. Whether blending or using other things along with it and yeah. Exactly.
3: Blending if you want muni exposure or if you don't or this and that and the other. So to make a long story short, there's north of 60, 70, 80 different portfolios that you can choose that we all manage. However, we've constructed them in a way where certain choices that we make as asset managers in terms of what fund I want to own for international exposure or what fund I want to own for oil and gas exposure... ...flow through to all of the portfolios in a programmatic, systematic way. And so it really enables you as the advisor and ultimately the end client to be like, yep, you know what, like, I want to take a moderate amount of risk, but I really want to be balanced between growth and income... that portfolio right there on the menu looks good for me. It's like, okay, great. You can pick that. We can do it in a systematic way and then we can manage it in a way that's not overly burdensome versus what we would be doing for the rest of the clients that are out there in in the universe. And it really is that. Customization—that ability to tailor a portfolio to a client need while also able to manage assets at scale—that I think is really the magical thing about uh, what we built at Bluemont. Well,
2: and then you talk about you know, so hey, maybe I want this exposure or that exposure. So when uh, something happens with like a news cycle, like hey, this is going on with Ukraine or this is going on with interest rates or this is what's going on inflation. When you see these like macroeconomic events that get thrown down our our, uh, clients' throats. What do you do for your own information cycle and how does that affect how you invest money?
3: Yep, absolutely. You know, as you'd expect, uh, this is all we do um, all day, every day. Uh, So we spend quite a lot of time focused on what's going on out there. And the interesting thing is, a lot of it's just noise, right? You know, if you think about if you think about the dominant macroeconomic topic that we have been talking about now for over a year, it's been inflation and interest rates, and that's about it, right? Um, have interest rates gone up too far? Are we, you know, gonna kill off? Are we gonna just are we inevitably gonna hit a recession or are we not? You know, what does all that mean? Is inflation getting under control? Is it not? And it sounds like it's new news every time you hear it. But the reality is, geez, we were talking about inflation in late 21 and then talking about the Fed getting involved in May of 22, uh, and now here we sit in July of 23, and we're talking about whether or not the Fed still has 50 basis points or one half of 1% of rate tightening to be done before they're done with the tightening cycle. That's It's kind of a slow news feed. Yeah. Um, And so on a daily basis. (laughs) Yeah. On a daily basis. Um, And so what we try and do, what you're always trying to do is separate a little bit the wheat from the chaff, if you will, you know, what, what is important, what needs to be reacted to and traded on and what is just noise. Uh, Because if you wind up chasing noise, you normally, I mean, the studies pretty consistently show that the more actively you manage these things, the less likely you are to do well, And so, you know, what the first thing that we always do is we get information is: is this information actually valuable and relevant and useful? Is it impactful or is it not? And I think usually we're trying to apply a longer-term lens to that. Is this something that we're going to face? Is it it a one-month deal or is it a 12, 18, 24-month deal? Uh, And if it's the latter, then that's something that we probably need to address. Things like changes in the interest rate cycle. Things like recession, non-recession, economy heating up, economy slowing down. Things like distributive, as we think about creating portfolios, how does the US economy look versus, you know, Western Europe or Japan or China or emerging markets? You know, so these types of longer-term pathways that we really start to think about, you know, are places where we're focused on making gradual course corrections over time to try and improve that risk return balance that we were talking about earlier, just try and optimize as we go. And then, you know, I, I just I bring it back to. Those longer term stories are exactly that. They take a while to play out months, sometimes years. We tried to not be tipping our, you know, falling over, trying to chase our own tails on, you know, what's this month's unemployment number going to look like? Because you will, you will you actually wind up doing a non-trivial amount of harm to portfolios when you try and chase it that way. A lot of what we do in response to that is just try and educate people on why, uh, you know, some of those macro data points that come out more frequently are this kind of like staccato drum beat that's going along in the song. And the more important thing to pay attention to in the song is the actual melody, not each and every beat that the drummer is tapping.
2: So uh, investing with the mathematics mathematician hard as opposed to like uh, emotionally knee-jerking at every news cycle is a better way to go?
3: <laughs> Just generally, yes. The more emotionally involved that you get, actually, and the studies on this are, are quite clear, the more emotionally you are, the more emotionally involved you are with the decision, the less likely it is to be a rational one. Uh, you know, we are irrational creatures that live in frequently a very rational world. And we don't have to get into all the sort of behavioral economics and, you know, science around. <laughs> That'd be a good wider.
2: next episode.
3: <laughs> yeah, it'd be a great next episode because I love this stuff. And it actually is one of the highest value adds of a financial advisor. Absolutely. Is coaching People around their emotions and around, uh, you know, making the right decision. But the less emotionally involved you can get. It actually even as simple as other people are likely to make better decisions with your money than you are because it's yours. And once it's your money, you feel the sting of gain and loss, you know, whereas if it's somebody else's money, you're more rational in the risks that you take for gains and losses because it's not yours. Yeah, just that one
2: step from the fear and euphoria.
3: Just that one step away helps a lot. A lot of times, when we get confronted with macroeconomic data, uh, you know, I know those of us who who those the some of your clients probably see our YouTube channel. They they know you know the constant drumbeat of this is what's going on out there, but this is why you really shouldn't be all that worried about it. You know, and and we are keeping an eye on things, but the right answer most of the time is to absolutely do
2: nothing. So that being said, are there certain things in the markets or or in the news cycle that uh, you're paying attention to, particularly right now, headwind, tailwind wise, as far as like markets are concerned?
3: Absolutely. You know, look, we'll bring it right back to the debate uh, that we've been having now for the better part of 24 months, which is inflation and interest rates. Right. Um, So. The Fed has indicated that they are very close to the end of their tightening cycle, although probably not all the way there yet. Mm -hmm. And inflation seems to be gradually getting under control. And I'll use the phrase gradually getting under (laughs) control. Okay, we're not there yet. I like to use the example of my uh, 16-year-old daughter who has just been a joy all through school. And always bringing home A's and B's and all advanced courses. And then I think midway through the fall this year, she came home with a D, like a solid D, not a D on an assignment, like a solid like D for the class. And, you know, so I did what any, you know, helicopter parent would do, which I try not to be a helicopter parent. But, you know, and we got the tutor and we were grounded, uh, you know, studying and we were doing all of these things. And probably a couple months later, she can't—not a couple months later, a couple weeks later, she came in and she's like, "Dad, like, I'm so excited, like my grades up to a C, right?" Right. And I'm like, (laughs) that's great. Right. Like we have made progress in the right direction. And that is absolutely fantastic. But the battle is not over. Right. (laughs) We are are not done with this task. Uh, You know, if we wanted to give a military example, like we can see the beach, but we're not on the beach yet. Like the battle is not won. I think, you know, the same thing is true of inflation. You know, we were recording on a month over month basis, kind of, 0.5, 0.6% 0.5, 0.6% month-over-month month inflation. Um, those numbers have since come down to maybe 0.4, point three, which is movement in the right direction. That's great. But well, we're not really on need the beach be at, yet. No, not on the beach yet. We really need to be at more like 0.1, 0.2 before I think the Fed uh, will have declared victory here. And to be clear, they're not going to stop until they declare victory. Uh, nobody wants to be known as the Fed that failed to control infa- inflation. Right in the in the fraternity room where all the Fed all the Fed presidents go to kind of hang out after work and everything. You don't want to be that guy, right? Like they all yeah. make fun of that guy. He sits over in the corner. Uh, yeah, nobody's in the buffet family. line,
1: yeah,
2: I'm.
3: Yeah, sure. exactly. Everybody <laughs> nervously looks away. Nobody, no Fed president
1: club. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you. go.
3: Um, it's very exclusive, but nobody wants to know, nobody wants to be known as that guy. So they are not going to stop until it's under control. And, you know, we've probably still got candidly a couple more months before the Fed would acknowledge that something, you know, that we've gotten to the point where they're comfortable maybe easing a little bit. In the meantime, we will continue to see news cycles that kind of vacillate between Is the economy too strong and thus maybe the Fed needs more than one half of 1% or maybe these interest rates need to stay higher for longer, which is bad for valuations. And then we'll start to get some negative reports on employment or, you know, maybe some companies laying some people off or maybe there's a little bit of a weak earnings season or something else like that. And all of the talk of have we gone too far and are we about to get a recession and all of that type of stuff will come right back up again. And so I think until we see it in the data, uh, you know, we won't know. The other thing that I will just mention is we are definitely right now in the Goldilocks phase of this news cycle where uh, a lot of people have come around to the view of maybe we have gotten inflation under control uh without having to have a recession maybe maybe we are going to navigate our way through this thing and maybe that means that companies can continue to kind of earn at the level they're earning now and then you know 6 months from now 12 months from now the fed can go back to a more neutral policy rate and that means lower interest rates and higher prices for assets. And so maybe, uh, you know, maybe maybe we are on the sort of path just right or temperature just right path. And I will just say this, you know, I think the other headwind that we're kind of keeping an eye on is, you know, stocks are relatively expensive versus certainly where they were five months ago, even on a multiples basis. Earnings multiples haven't earnings of the S&P 500 hasn't really changed all that much uh, in terms of where estimates are valuations have changed a lot that means that multiples have changed a lot. and so I think that you know that's one of the others just sort of headwinds tailwinds you know that's out there. there's some good news priced into the market right now and uh, you know we'll see if that comes to fruition. It's always concerning. People like to talk about it because nobody likes to buy stuff when it's expensive. But I would just say that historically, price-to-earnings ratios have never been an actual good indicator of when to buy or when to sell, taken solely on their own. Um, every model out there that you know attempts to build this, you know, like well, you should buy it when it's here and then sell it when it's there, and I've found the mathematical answer normally has uh, some type of added variable on top of it, uh, which helps people fit data, which is a bad thing if you're a statistician. Um, yeah, so absolutely well, let's change um,
2: how we measure it and then, uh, think that we're doing okay.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. I used to joke, people would come to me with, you know, I figured out this quantitative model of like how to trade. And I'm like, well, you know, here's the problem with that is like, I can construct a model that says, you know, every time you buy a stock where they report earnings on a Tuesday and the CEO lives in Pennsylvania. um, You know, that historically, those stocks have had fantastic returns, right? And that doesn't mean anything. It just happens to be a pattern that fits the historical data. Um, It doesn't mean that it has any predictive power. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that, you know, attempt to find the answer and we call that data fitting in uh, statistics and it's bad. So don't do it. And if you find somebody that's doing it, run screaming in the other direction because,
2: yeah. Oh, man, I am so glad that I've got you in the system and I so super appreciate you uh, taking the time today. This, This has been just great.
3: All right. anytime, anytime at all. And uh, I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys for reaching out. And uh, you know, who knows? I'm a guest now. Uh, you know, I'm angling for the repeat guest title um, at some point in the future. Um, so uh, you guys just let me know. And, oh, uh, and I, I'm scribbling
2: down a behavioral economics for dummies podcast episode. And uh, so uh, if, if you're in, uh, that'd be great. <laughs> always, always, always go
1: from repeat to recurring role.
2: <laughs> that I love
3: it. I love yeah. it.
1: I love okay. It. So it sounds like that those fancy degrees are really paying off for you. So where can people go to find out a little more information, Rick?
3: Yeah, absolutely. They can always find Mr. Heckman and Mr. Heckman always links back to me. You can also go to Bluemont.com, which is B-L-U-E-M-O-N-T-E. And uh, if you're ever interested and want to buy me a cocktail, I'll explain to you how you have to trademark names in this industry. Otherwise, you can't use them. And when you're trying to find a name that you can trademark, uh, you wind up with odd spellings. So once again, that's (laughs) Bluemonts, B-L-U-E-M-O-N-T-E dot com you can look for us uh and you'll find us on the web uh and you can link to my youtube channel if you like this type of content you can always find us online and get regular updates that way
1: all right mike what is all of this stuff where can everybody find you
2: yes absolutely uh so uh uh, com, spelled s-a-b-l-e and then uh They can call the office and the team's happy to help at uh, 231-425-4308. That's 231-425-4308. And now the wealthdoc.com landing page is active. So that's a good way to find us too. And uh, re-listen
1: to this or uh, uh, subscribe and uh, join us. Sounds good. Well, thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Doc Podcast with Mike Heckman. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Have questions? Visit our website at sobblepointwealthmanagement.com or give us a call at 231-425-4308. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest, and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Sobble Point Wealth Management. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analyses of Mike Heckman. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG advisory, private client services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Mike Heckman or RFG advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by Registered Representatives of Private Client Services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private client services, Mike Heckman and RFG Advisory, are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No
1: advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place.